0: Hello and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter Gabby Barco, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Hello, Kale. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you, Gabby?
0: Doing very well, yeah. I uh, We had a lot of news to get through this morning, so that was uh, to prep for this. So, That was really fun, but yeah, let's get into it. Uh, First up, we are, apparently any day now, we are getting an Instacart IPO, so we'll delve into that first. After that, we'll talk about Aldi's acquisition of a Southeastern grocery chain that owns Winn-Dixie, and uh, we'll round it off by talking about Everlane's renewed ambition to become a top apparel brand after a few years of turmoil internally. So first up, let's talk about Instacart with this latest report from Bloomberg, which looks like uh, it is prepping to go public as soon as September.
1: Yeah, Uh, this has been... A long time coming. I think it's been many, many years that we've talked about an apparent Instacart IPO. There have been stories very similar to this one written in the past, so we'll see if this actually pans out. But Bloomberg reported earlier this week that sources with direct knowledge of the matter say that there's going to be an IPO potentially next week, but the hope uh, is to go public as soon as September, which is wild given you know the, the fits and spurts that this company has seen With relation to its its plan to go public,
0: yeah, because uh, I believe originally it was going to be sometime during that COVID haze when it was just Instacart was on top of the world, but they missed that window, and then from there, the valuation has been dropping pretty dramatically. Uh, I think the yeah they slashed they slashed it from thirty nine billion to twenty four, and now it's down to 13 billion, which sounds a lot more realistic, maybe. Uh, But yeah, this time, um, I think with what you were saying, it's it's hard because this feels like yeah deja vu like we've heard it a couple of we, we times we we know that
1: we know this story no but i mean there are a few key dif- differences with this latest um announcement one like the company instacart gave a press release in may 2022 if i'm not mistaken that said it had uh confidentially filed to go public which were was the the initial move to do a direct listing um then the company was ultimately like no never mind not things aren't right. The valuation got slashed. Not only that, but the markets are com- complete crap, and this is not a good time for us to make our public debut. Which fine. Now, you know, we don't have a press release from Instacart. Instacart did not um, give a comment from what I from what I've read to Bloomberg, but it's doing a traditional route. So it's not doing the direct route. It's going to do the usual dog and pony show of of an IPO, which I think is of note, um, and we'll probably get to this in a few minutes. But it shows that. I think Instacart is trying to be one of the, you could say, battalion leaders. You know, there's been a real cooled public market right now. A lot of valuations have dropped. We've seen other companies that were maybe going to go public, look for a sale, or other companies unable to raise money. You know, it's it's a weird moment we're in, but there have been hints that... Things could be rebounding, um, in you know, on Wall Street, and it seems like Instacart is viewing this as the time when it can pounce and be the leader within that. But you know, there are other things we should talk about first before we get into th- th- those details.
0: Yeah, I mean, for one, um, despite online grocery, uh, of course, you know, slowed down uh, over the last year or so, uh, Instacart does have a pretty big monopoly on it and you know they do kind of they control according to insider intelligence about 73% of digital grocery orders so they do they have been continuing to grow maybe not at the same rate as they were in 2020 but uh I think earlier this year it was reported that their revenue increased 39% so that's not nothing so it seems like they are confident um but maybe this has more to do with well, why don't we talk about I think it's worth noting that instacart specifically has a very maybe polarizing reputation <laughs> among yeah. both the public and uh the retail in general because you know now it's it's been trying to build its uh ad revenue up it's trying to diversify you know beyond just grocery but um it's always had this uh issues with its gig workers and pay issues and working conditions, especially, you know, during uh, when they were basically working the front lines during COVID. Um, but they have been, you know, kind of, this has been kind of on the back burner over the last couple of years um, while they prep for this IPO.
1: Yeah, I mean, Instacart was sort of the I don't want to say poster yeah we'll say it Instacart was the one of the poster children of gig work um in the sense not in a not in a positive light but in the light of this has become a ubiquitous thing people are using these services and there are workers who who will be picking and packing your groceries and then giving them to you and that was the ultimate you know, it started with Uber, then it went to platforms like DoorDash, etc. Uh, and and then Instacart was the the one that really took it by storm and made it into, you know, a national phenomenon. Um, and and that was really the value proposition that Instacart first launched with was the idea that, you know, you can order your groceries with an app and someone else will get them for you, someone else will deliver them to you. And that uh that got a lot of you know, questionable press, you know, stories. Modern retail has written stories like from the perspective of um, an Instacart worker, you know, during the pandemic when it was pure hell. Um, There have been questions about, you know, how equitable the pay system is. It's been very opaque. But I think what Instacart has been trying to do specifically for the last two years with this as a backdrop, this IPO as a backdrop, is rebrand itself not just as the delivery platform where other people get your things for you, um, for one, it's been trying to be, go beyond grocery and go into things like stores. I, I think we've talked about this on the program multiple times, but is it, is it Sephora that it currently has um, a, 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 a partnerships mm-hmm. And with multiple retailers, like I think... Um, is it old navy? I don't know. They're like all, like apparel, there's beauty, there's convenience. It's trying to go beyond that. But then the real thing that I think Instacart is trying to sell specifically to Wall Street is the ad platform, as you said. So it's been building out a robust ad platform so that brands can sell ads uh you know, know, on, on the app, you know, in many different ways. Some of that, you know, trying to be the leader in the retail media space. What's more, Instacart is also trying to rebrand itself as a retail. Tech company. And so it's been building a lot of new bells and whistles that its retail partners like mom and pop groceries can put into their uh their stores, like a like a smart cart that automatically checks things out and other more ad-focused, but still in-store related uh types of technology. So I think there's been a ma- a very big rebranding on Instagram, uh, not Instagram, on Instacart's part, um, that's been focused specifically on showing that it's not just the app where you buy groceries and someone else will get them for you, but it sells all these ancillary services that have, for one, better margins, but also tell a bigger story about all of the things it does that's that's related to the retail industry.
0: hmm Yeah, and like you said, this is all now happening uh, in a very interesting environment for public debuts. Uh, there's it's not that there aren't any IPOs happening, but they're just nowhere near what they were in 2021, especially for these types of, you know, e-commerce, retail startups. Uh, But it's, if it, if it does happen, this could also be, yeah, it can also be like Instacart kind of taking the lead and, you know, kind of ushering in a lot of uh, the companies that are kind of, Standing on the sidelines, I just wrote about this. We have companies like Skims and Birkenstock that have really high valuations, just raised some money, but they are uh, just, for all intents and purposes, they have been just standing by, waiting to see what's going on. Um, And then there are a couple of companies that have gone public and seemingly doing okay. So it's not all scary out there. But yeah, what are your thoughts on whether things will be picking back up? you know, with this momentum.
1: I mean, it seems like things are going to pick back up because that's the natural cycle of things. There are there are dips and there are rises. And we've definitely been in a dip. And we've definitely seen a few examples of some IPOs that got the business press's attention that got investors attention. You know, there's Kava, which clearly a fast, casual, quasi Mediterranean restaurant is not Instacart. But um uh, Kava is also doing quite well still. I checked its stock price this morning and it's still trading above what it had set its price at you know, a few months ago. Oddity um, also w- went public not too long ago and it still is doing well in the public markets. And I think that sets a precedent for specifically commerce and retail brands that are thinking about doing this, saying like, okay, maybe the time is right. And I think that there's something very specific with Instacart that I want to mention is that Instacart missed the boat last time. I think it really wanted to be part of the the onslaught of IPOs that happened, you know, during the, you know, in the midst of the pandemic. And it went too slowly and as a result realized it wasn't able to do it then because it just wouldn't have been advantageous. So I think the fact that the company is now saying we're laying the groundwork and we're going to do this quickly is pretty much proof that it wants to be ahead of this curve and in the right Wall Street moment to do this. And so I think it's smart for Instacart to do it now. And I also think Instacart knows that it's probably now or, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe there'll be another dip after a series of, of you know, good performance six months to a year from now. So I think it's being very, very, cr- thinking very, very critically about the t- when the time is right. And now probably the time is right.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we always talk about is that an IPO brings those numbers publicly. Right now, we we really can't tell whether Instacart is profitable or not. And interestingly enough, uh, if you look at Kava and Oddity, which is a beauty tech platform, they both turned a profit or were already profitable before going public. So sometimes, I don't know, I was talking to someone who said... Maybe it's timing. Maybe it's just kind of like knowing exactly when to yeah. push the we button. We are profitable right now. <laughs> <laughs> right this minute, push the button. Yeah, no. who knows? I mean, maybe they'll go public and we'll see that. Yeah, Instacart's profit margins are crazy high. But yeah, I think uh, if it does happen in the next couple of weeks, that'll, that'll be a real turning point for uh, public debuts.
1: It's true. And you'll probably be hearing us talk about it even more. So stay tuned. <laughs>
0: We are going to keep talking about groceries, one of our <laughs> favorite topics. We love grocery. We love it. Um yeah, this week uh you know, maybe a little bit in a different direction, but there's been uh some consolidation happening where Aldi, the German grocery giant, uh announced an acquisition of Southeastern Grocers, which is the parent company of Winn-Dixie and Harveys. They have about 400 stores. Uh, across the Southeast region and essentially kind of compete with Publix just on a smaller scale, uh, but yeah, w- uh, we don't know how much the deal is for. But this is actually Aldi's first acquisition; they've been more on the like opening their own stores mm-hmm. streak for a lo- for a while now. But uh, this kind of yeah gives them a really big presence in the Southeast.
1: Yeah. It's uh definitely interesting. Aldi has been on a expansion streak that's pretty wild. Um, you know, I think we'll we'll get into this later on, but like the it wants to have over two thousand locations, I think, by the end of next year, which you know, it already has a fair amount open, but just it's that company has really gone from zero to a hundred over the last few years in terms of grocery expansion. And so I, I think the fact that it's going after a chain, If you had asked me a couple of months ago, do you think Aldi will specifically buy, you know, Winn-Dixie, I would have said, I don't think so. So it's an interesting and kind of surprising uh, strategy for me, but it makes sense because, A, the Southeastern Grocers hasn't been doing well. Uh, It filed for bankruptcy, I believe, in 2018, closed nearly 100 stores um was going to try and go public again but then scrapped that clearly it was in a distressed situation and was looking for someone to help bail it out and also it already had probably the perfect footprints for what Aldi wants you know when you know a, a grocery store i when dixie is pretty value based so it probably had a lot of the the right elements in place in order to convert it to the way that Aldi works you know now that i think about it now that i see it it actually makes a lot of sense
0: with Aldi specifically, I mean, you know, I'm sure those of you who know, know that it really competes with, like you said, value. Uh, it's known for its just cheap pantry, groceries, and whatnot. And so, especially in this economy, I mean, they've told us that their biggest goal is to really undercut competition with their prices. They're dropping yeah. prices while other uh, retailers are raising them. And so... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether they could kind of dominate that region with these 400 new stores. Uh, But with that said, um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, just expand it out to all these U.S. investment in the last few years? I know you just mentioned it, but in just the Southeast specifically, they say they've uh, poured in about $2.5 billion since the mid-90s. So this isn't really like a new strategy, but it has ramped up in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, I would say in the last few years, it's really ramped up in terms of the amount of store openings. Um, it's uh, planning to open 20 of its own stores, I think, you know uh, in that region. And so that's a lot of new stores. Um, pretty much what Aldi has gone on the record, you know, it's a company that usually holds its cards pretty close to its chest, but then will go public saying pretty much one statement, which is, we're expanding. Um, And so Aldi's been expanding a lot and trying to become, like, more of a ubiquitous player um, in the the United States. I I think it said... Is it 2,400 that it wants to open, uh, have locations in the U.S.? Yeah, it's
0: it's currently just over 2,300, and then by next year, it'll be 2,400. So yeah, we're looking at 100 more stores. This is separate from the new new, uh, fleet. But this also comes at a time when consolidation is also facing pushback. Uh, We saw currently there's a deal where uh, Kroger and Albertsons are supposed to Merge in a twenty-five billion dollar deal, but there's antitrust pushback as usual with these types of big mergers. Um, so, of course, you know Aldi is not really on the same level, but there does seem to be kind of you know there's a public and government awareness of all of this does minimize competition. Uh, of course, the retailers say that no, it's good for the for the employees yeah. and the customers. But uh, yeah, do you think we'll just continue to see all of, I mean, Kroger already obviously owns, it is the biggest grocery chain in the country, but uh, it seems like they're, yeah, they're just on the path to become almost a duopoly with uh, Albertsons.
1: Yeah, no, it's, you know, if that goes through, which it's seeming less and less likely that it will, given I think earlier this week, there was a, a group of many many secretaries of state um who wrote a letter to the FTC pretty much saying don't let this go through um it would it would seriously undercut competition this is specifically about Kroger Albertsons they said that you know if Kroger Albertsons do merge they would hold almost 25% of the entire grocery market share which is wild when you think about it um and i think that that <laughs> that's a serious you know that that's a real and serious claim that the FTC will have to take into account And I also think the fact that Aldi, you know, the the fact that Aldi is buying, you know, another ailing company just shows how shaky the grocery industry in the United States specifically is right now, where I think it is the, the bigger leaders who are leading the pack. Walmart is, you know, a grocery leader. You know, Amazon is increasingly trying to grow its footprint. It is not anywhere near uh you know, it's not anywhere near the size of Walmart or or Kroger for that matter, but it has the amount of money that it could be, you know, grow more to a present grow its presence more if it does uh, if it does strat- find a strategy that does work. Um, and the fact that we're seeing, you know, these these regional these regional players that have been around for decades, um going bankrupt, closing up, selling up shows that it's a pretty dire situation out here for specifically the smaller guys. Um, so I, I mean, like, I think that it's, it's, you know, the regulators are right to keep an eye on this and try and keep competition as healthy as possible. And I do think that there is a huge risk of, of antitrust issues if you do have two of the biggest players come together. And so we'll see, we'll see if this letter from the secretaries of state has any, you know, has any real push. Uh, and we'll see what actually happens with Kroger, um, Albertsons. But I think that, Just the fact that that's happening and we have the Aldi thing happening just shows that we're in a real moment um, of consolidation. Um, Mm -hmm. So interesting times for groceries, what I'll say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the Aldi deal is uh, supposed to close in the first half of 2024, probably more likely so than the Kroger one. But we, yeah, we'll see what they do with those stores. It'll be interesting. Next up, we are talking about Everlane, one of the first D2C brands to ever exist. Probably the first one I've ever shopped. What about you, Kale? What's the first d D2C brand you've shopped?
1: I mean, there have been direct to consumer companies since you know the '60s and '70s, so I don't All know. Right. Like,
0: okay, okay. Well, let's, talk, let's talk about the new. <laughs> but yes, no, no, no. I will say, I, yeah,
1: I will say of digitally, yeah, you're, you're totally right. I think Everlane was the first one that I ever knew about and understood that it was different than other brands.
0: Yeah, there's always that person who's like, actually, Lululemon was <laughs> the first one of the '90s, but I'm talking, yeah, yeah the digitally native. Uh, yeah. Car. But uh, with that said, uh, you know, Everlane's had a tumultuous few years. It uh, launched in 2010, was doing pretty well, never really came close to anything we're talking about with these other brands, whether it's like an IPO or exit, which I always found pretty interesting. They've always just continuously raised hundreds of millions of dollars. But uh, being this, you know, sustainable, uh, I'm putting that in air quotes, brand, um. It had its own value prop as far as disrupting the apparel industry, but it faced a lot of hurdles, especially in the last maybe five-ish years from, you know, greenwashing to the internal structure of the company and how they treat their employees.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... The DTC, or I guess we could call it Vertically Integrated Marketing Playbook, the idea as, do you want to know where your things came from? Go to our website, we'll tell you. Everlane really, really mastered that and made that into a marketing tactic that became pretty ubiquitous with other DTC, DNVB companies. Um, and then you know, I'd say you know, in the last five years, specific, definitely in the last three years, a lot of holes began to show, uh, both in terms of You know, questions of greenwashing, as you mentioned, questions of company culture. There were many exposés that came out. Um, There was one really big one in The New York Times, I think, in 2020 that just talked about, you know, the company saying that it was inclusive and then, you know, workers saying, no, it isn't. And it was, you know, something like a four bylined New York Times exposé about how people did not feel included um, in this company. Um, And then, you know, there there were even allegations of things like union busting. I think Bernie Sanders even went so far as to make a call out that, you know, the company wasn't living up to the values it espoused. And so it's been a really interesting trajectory. And I think what's specifically fascinating with Everlane is... Uh, clearly, the values were aligned with the shoppers because uh, the company sort of began to, you know, we we don't have sales numbers, but it was not as beloved in the last five years as it was before, and I think that w- happened in tandem with all of these different controversies that were about chipping away at the truth of its of its values.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with that, I think there, Averline was sort of uh, the. Uh, poster child, if you will, of uh, kind of this bigger magnifying glass on these companies, yeah. especially like, I mean, it's one thing when a big conglomerate talks about it and everyone just kind of rolls their eyes. But these were these new startups that are like, we're, we're actually sustainable. We are eco-friendly. We, you know exactly what factory your clothes are coming in from, but then I think a lot of people felt like there was a sting of hypocrisy that was happening. And maybe that Mm -hmm. obviously put, uh, yeah, a a stain on Everlane's rep. But all of that is now, there is a turnaround plan with new executives. Uh, I believe that the co-founder and CEO has stepped back. And now there's like, you know, actual fashion uh, veterans who came in and are trying to kind of reinvent Everlane into this just like, just really nice, timeless staples, which I guess was sort of maybe what they were trying to do to begin with.
1: Yeah, I think that the focus is now much more on the fashion and the durability and less on the like, the marketing side of things. That's at least, you know, there was w- 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 the reason why we're talking about this is there was a Forbes piece that came out a few days ago with that was essentially an interview with the new CEO, Andrea O'Donnell. She's a veteran of places like Decker's Uggs. Um and she's she's been in place as CEO for a couple of years now, but is now beginning to to show a little bit of what the plan is and the plan is uh as you said gabby the idea of forever you know the the clothes clothes it's very very anti-fast fashion anti-seasonality it's you can wear this this season, you can wear it next season, you can wear it forever. But another really important thing that she's hammering away, but we haven't seen the numbers, of course, is profitability. Everything wants to get profitable. And so putting, putting together a business plan that is about apparel, that is more durable, that can work in any season, but also a company that will allegedly become profitable some, some, somewhat soon. So that's, that's the plan that's being presented to us right now.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you said, we don't really know whether it, it ever hit that profit margin. But they did raise about $90 million in debt just last September. And usually the, that points to, you know, it was just extending runway and not being there quite yet. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether this, you know, grant plan uh, will actually bode any type of um I guess maybe the the public perception or the media perception of Everlane because it has been sort of in the background for a little while.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been quiet for a couple of years now, and probably thinks now is the time to reenter. I don't see why not. It's not. It wasn't like a brand that was given a real. A a real lasting blow that would means that it wouldn't last forever. I think it definitely has the makings of coming back, and it just needs to have the right messaging, the right assortment, all of that different things. Which O'Donnell says she she now has. Um, I do think the idea of it being forever clothing is really interesting and does kind of speak to the moment we're in, specifically with all the backlash to Shein to, you know, other other fast fashion players. I feel like there's a a really big battle going on right now for um companies in the middle. So, you know, you're not quite luxury. Um you're you're more expensive. I guess Shein is pretty value-based, but I think that there are other you know, apparel brands out there that are trying to combat with Shein because Shein is making clothing that looks nicer. And so the fact that Everlane is saying what we're making a will last a very long time but B is not tied to seasonality it's very timeless you can wear it whenever um i think is a really interesting marketing you know ploy we'll see if it works we'll see if people understand what sort of the the counterbalance it's trying to create but but i don't know
0: yeah and uh we're seeing that with its collections uh they mentioned that for the majority of it, about 70% is continuous releases as opposed to new products constantly dropping. So, yeah, it seems like they are trying to kind of stick to this uh, capsule wardrobe uh, theme or concept. Um, Great. Well, that is our show for this week. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with industry leaders every Thursday. Kale, do you want to give us a preview of who you have on next week?
1: Sure. Next week, I'm talking with the CMO of Georgia Pacific, which is the company behind... Like every paper product you use, like Dixie Cups and things like that. And so she's the she's leads that marketing charge. It was a very interesting conversation.
0: Oh, all right. And of course, come back every Saturday for the modern retail rundown. And as always, thank you for listening.